What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. This is Booked on Rock. I'm Eric Senich. Our guest, John Vanderkist, author of 1970, A Year in Rock, The Year Rock Became Mainstream. 1970 was a year of change in pop and rock music, with divisions between both becoming ever more blurred. More ambitiously constructed epics, heavy rock numbers, and contemporary folk songs competed with a mainstream and easy-listening fare on top of the pops and in the top 30 singles, while progressive and jazz rock took their first bows in the album charts. There were live albums, notably from the Rolling Stones and The Who, made partly to combat the market in bootleg recordings. Meanwhile, several singer-songwriters like James Taylor found major acceptance, and the death of Jimi Hendrix was widely mourned. The likes of Van Morrison, Elton John, Deep Purple, and Lindisfarne achieved their initial successes. Groups like Led Zeppelin and Jethro Tull consolidated early success while developing in new directions. By the end of the year, many a critic and music fan could look back on a 12-month period in which their landscape had altered almost beyond recognition. This is the story of 1970 and the 25 key rock albums that helped define it. John Vanderkist has published over 70 books, mostly historical biography and music, including titles on The Beatles, Jeff Lynne and ELO, Led Zeppelin, Lindisfarne, and Steve Winwood. He's also reviewed books and records for the local and national press and fanzines, and co-founded and edited the 70s fanzine Keep On Rockin'. He's performed with groups, run mobile discos, and written booklet notes for CD reissues from EMI and other labels. An occasional musician and songwriter, he also co-wrote one track on Riff Regan's 2015 album Milestones, and played harmonica on London's 2020 album The Hell for Leather Mob. You can hear a playlist of the music discussed in this episode on the show notes page. Hi, John. Thanks so much for being on the Booked on Rock podcast. Very glad to be here. Thank you. So, John, before we get into the book, I looked up your name, and you're on Wikipedia. You're from Wendover, Buckinghamshire, and you are the son of a wing commander in the British Royal Air Force? I was a wing commander in the Second World War. That's right. What's your father's name? Guy. Guy Vanderkist. How many stories did he tell you as a kid? Well, to be honest, not a lot. You know, he did say he had a very good war, and I think he absolutely loved being in the RAF. But, of course, it was a very sad time for the family, really, because he lost a brother on active service, as did my mother. You know, she lost her only brother, and uh, I think that was a, a sadness she carried with her forever. But all the same, I think my father really enjoyed his life in the RAF during the war, and I think he was, uh, he was quite sad to leave it in the end. And you formed a rock band yourself, Cobweb. Ah, yes. Well, that was uh, the first one, actually. That Cobweb is just a band we formed at school when I was 16, 17. And in fact, the guy I formed it with, called Miles Stradinic, he later changed his name to Riff Regan, and he formed a punk rock and new wave band in the mid-70s. 
about the same time as the Sex Pistols. Wow, they made a few records and they, they split up, but they did actually reform a few years ago. I have formed one or two more bands, didn't live very long, but yeah, they were good fun while they lasted. I formed a few more bands after I left school, you know, playing rock music, playing a bit of folk, writing a few songs, playing guitar, harmonica, mandolin, that sort of thing. You had your first book out, Frederick III, in 1981, it says here. Yes, that's right. I started off writing a historical biography, mostly. It's only more recently I got onto music in a big way. Then music has always been a, an absolute passion of mine ever since I was a kid at school. Which is a perfect segue to the book, 1970, A Year in Rock, The Year Rock Became Mainstream. You write about being a teenager in the year 1970. Can you talk about why you decided to write a book on this specific year? I can, yes. Well, in 1970, I was 15. I had my 16th birthday that year. And it occurred to me while I was, I was at school at the time, and I thought, you know, there were incredible changes going on in music. You know, there have been little sort of rumblings, I suppose, underneath the surface during 68, 69. You've got the beginnings of prog rock. You've got Progal Harum, Pink Floyd. You've got the blues rockers like Cream, Jimi Hendrix, Fleetwood Mac, and so on. But I think 1970 was the year that it all suddenly sort of burst open. You just could not miss it on the daytime radio shows anymore. And you're getting sort of rock and prog singles, completely different stuff in the charts. The old pop stuff and the old middle-of-the-road uh, songsters, people like Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley were still there. But you got the feeling that something new was really coming into its own. And it was, it was all quite exciting. You put the chart for January of 1970 from Melody Maker in the book, the number one song, Two Little Boys by Rolf Harris. A lot of middle-of-the-road entertainers in there. And like you write in the introduction, it was pretty obvious that music in both the UK and US were undergoing a massive change. Can you talk about where music was at the start of the 70s? 1970, the very beginning of the year, it seemed like nothing really had changed. Yes, we, we got Rolf Harris, we got Tom Jones, Roger Whittaker, Jim Reeves. <laughs> Sort of black, what you might call the old guard, but you were sort of starting to get different people getting the more progressive guard, you know, coming on the radio, you were hearing a bit more people like Jethro Tull, Deep Purple, stuff like that. And, you know, a few weeks later, it's really completely different. I mean, you, well, a few weeks, a few months, whatever, you've got Canned Heat narrowly missing number one in Britain with Let's Work Together. Later on in the year, you've got Jimi Hendrix having a number one single. That was extraordinary. You've got three sort of all changing for the top spot. Pink Floyd getting a number one album. You know, it's quite obvious that things were changing and they weren't going to change back again. <laughs> and the biggest story in music, of course, at the start of the decade, the end of the Beatles. There's an opening in the market. That means record labels and radio stations, they're looking for the next big band or artist to fill that void. That band would actually be one signed to the Beatles' Apple label, Badfinger. And this was a band with huge promise. Sadly, things fell apart in later years, but 1970 was a really good year for this band. Who was Badfinger? Badfinger, enormously talented band from Wales, who uh, everybody thought were going to be the next Beatles, because they did sound quite similar, as well as the fact they were on the Beatles' Apple label. Paul McCartney had written their first single. Paul and also George Harrison at different times were producing them. What was that first single? I'm trying to remember the song that Paul wrote for them. Which one first, was? Uh, the first single was Come and Get It yes. at the start of the year. Paul McCartney wrote that, and in fact, he did actually record that. So it's a one-man demo. It came out on the Beatles anthology CD a few years ago. There was great promise with that band. Sadly, things fell apart. Band management issues, money issues, problems with the record labels, frictions within the band, and everything just fell apart by the mid-70s. 
a very tragic story, and uh, you know, two of them unfortunately came to sad ends uh, by their own hand. You know, that was one classic tragic example of how it can all go wrong when you know, suddenly the future looks golden, the sky should have been their limit, but it never was. I think at that time that you know, the media was desperately looking for the new Beatles. I think Bad Finger were probably the first to be named. And then later on you had Lindisfarne, the folk walkers from Northumberland, the, the folk rock Beatles, the Geordies. A lot of people said, ah, they've got to be the Beatles. Great songwriters, great vocal harmonies, great musicians and so on. And I think for, for a couple of years they really looked on course to be the next big thing. And they were, were for, a, well, for a few weeks. Lindisfarne is one here in the U.S. I don't think they're really as well known as Badfinger from what I recall. Lindisfarne was a folk band, you say? They were like the folk version of the Beatles? They were pigeonholed as folk, but they would deny that. They were really folk rock. There was quite a lot of electric music in their makeup. They could be quite heavy at times, but I think it was just convenient to label them as a folk group because of the acoustic guitars, the, you know, the violin, the mandolin, and so on. What ultimately happened to Lindisfarne? going to be the next big thing to happen by the end of 1970 with their album Nicely Out of Tune. The following year in Britain, they had a, a massive number one album, Fog on the Sign, and for a few weeks it was as if you could not get away from Lindisfarne. They were absolutely everywhere. Then they made a third album in 1972, which they were delighted with at first, but the critics tore it to shreds because I think they were expecting something absolutely fantastic. And it was a, it, it was a good record, but it's probably not the great surprise that they thought it was going to be. And I think that's when... Dissolution set in, you know, the critics began to round on them, and a few months later they divided into two, eventually split completely, reformed again, but were never really quite the big success they were. Although actually they did in the late 70s have a top 40 success in America with Run for Home. Can you talk about the bittersweet year that was 1970 for Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel? A hugely successful album, yet they were like the Beatles about to come to an end. They were, yeah, because I, I think... Simon and Garfunkel were a bit like Lennon and McCartney. They made a great partnership, but they were always sparring behind the scenes. And they were a bit like chalk and cheese. And uh, with a lot of these things, a partnership can only last a certain amount of time before they decide they just cannot work together any longer and you know, want to go off and do different things. But luckily for Simon and Garfunkel, 1970 was the year of their masterpiece. They absolutely crowned it with Bridge Over Troubled Water, didn't they? That's one of those songs that went right across the board. Everybody loved it, no matter how old you were, what country you were. <laughs> Bridge Over Troubled Water was an amazing song that spoke to everyone. And uh, I suppose it's just as well they split up after that, because how can you follow a record like that? And we'll get to that album a little bit more later on. Oh, yes. You yes. list 25 yeah. albums from that year that really stand out, and that's one of them. The Rolling Stones and the Beatles... They were the two biggest British groups of the 60s, but as we begin the next decade, there was another UK band about to rise up, and that was The Who, and they start off the decade oh, with that yes. legendary live album, Live at Leeds, and 1970 was the year where the live album came into its own. Can you talk about some of the standout live albums from 1970? Well, the two big ones were Live at Leeds, which came very early on in the year, and then a bit later on, the Rolling Stones, Get Your Yaya's Out, the one they recorded on the American tours. It's quite an interesting contrast, those two albums, which I did in the book, because The Who were doing much longer versions of most of their songs. I mean, that version of my generation went on for something like 15 minutes. And, that, you know, you certainly didn't have a hit single lasting 15 minutes, did you? But on the other hand, The Rolling Stones, get your eyes out, that had got several of the most recent singles on it. It got Jumbo Jack Flash, got Honky Tonk Women, you know, which were very faithful to the originals. So I think what you heard on the Rolling Stones on stage was much closer to how their records sounded, except obviously a bit more raw, a few more rough edges. Fleetwood Mac, another interesting story. Where Fleetwood Mac is at the start of the decade and where they are at the end, 
Wow. They were about to hit a hitless period, followed by a legendary run of hits. Who was in the lineup of Fleetwood Mac in 1970, and who was about to leave the band that year? Fleetwood Mac at the beginning of 1970 were probably the greatest blues band around, certainly the most successful. You've got Peter Green out at the front, and then you've got two other guitarists, Jeremy Spencer and Danny Kerwin, and then you've got the bassist John McVie and the drummer Mick Fleetwood, the two guys after whom the group were named in the first place, Fleetwood Mac. And rather fortuitously, they were the ones that kept going throughout the game, and they're still there 50 years later, aren't they? Whereas uh, Peter Green sadly left in 1970. He'd had a lot of mental health problems. Uh, a certain amount of it aggressively was drug-induced, taking the wrong stuff, his drink being spiked, that sort of thing. Jeremy Spencer, likewise, I think he had a few mental issues. Danny Kerwin certainly did. Those three guitarists just did not stay the course. They all left that year. John McVie and Mick Fleetwood you know, kept the group going with guitarist after guitarist, singer after singer. And amazingly, the new group came back, 1976-77. They got the Rumours album, and you know, that has just never stopped selling, and they just never looked back since. Yeah, they added a few musicians by the name of Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, and that made a big difference. Do you prefer... That's right, yes. Yeah, they completely revitalized the group, didn't they? Absolutely. Do you? Some people yeah. prefer that old-school Fleetwood Mac, the bluesy. I know Peter Green has a great amount of respect among guitarists. Do you prefer that old oh, lineup, yes. or, or are you more of a fan of the the later years, or the later 70s years lineup of Fleetwood Mac? I think I'll probably choose the old group, actually. There was a certain amount of freshness about the blues stuff, and also the fact that they did do some non-blues songs. They did experiment with things like Albatross, the instrumental, and then there was Oh Well, which is a bit of jazz funk, and then had that classical ending. Obviously, the new, the current Fleetwood Mac are great. They're tremendous songwriters, but I think maybe they just couldn't recapture the old magic. And also, I suppose you can level the charge against them that possibly they are a little bit too popular. Maybe you just can't get away from some of those songs, and that does make them a little bit stale, perhaps. I heard Oh Well first from that era. That's the yes. first old-school era Fleetwood Mac song I heard, but I heard oh, Albatross. Yeah, yeah. Somebody gave me a copy of the 69 live album by Fleetwood Mac, and I heard Albatross, and that's when I became a fan of that era as well. Mm -hmm. I love both eras, or all eras of Fleetwood yeah, Mac, I, I guess I you think. I think Man of the World we should mention as well. Yes. Beautiful song, very sad, but really quite moving, that one. One of my other favorite bands from this era, Faces. Just a year before, they were known as The Small Faces, what happens with this band in 1970? They lose one big band member, but they gain two new, soon-to-be, very well-known musicians, very similar to Fleetwood Mac. Oh, they did indeed. Well, with the small faces in the late 60s, they were really rather like a, a bit of a one-man band plus three other musicians. Steve Marriott was the guy out front. You know, he really was a, quite a towering force, even though he was quite a small chap. But, you know, great singer, great songwriter, but he couldn't work with the band any longer after a couple of years, so they fell apart. But... Very quickly, they managed to get Rod Stewart and Ron Wood from the Jeff Beck group on board. And they came back absolutely massively. They were probably the best pub band in the world ever. They got this wonderful mixture of rock and roll and blues going, had a great stage act. They weren't all that polished, but they were, they were just great fun to listen to, great fun to watch. And also in Rod Stewart, they had this really incredible sort of folky singer-songwriter. You know, he would do some right, good old roistering rock and roll, things like Twisting the Night Away one moment, and then he'd be doing these lovely folk ballads, things like Maggie May, Mandolin Wind, and, and that sort of thing. Unbeatable talent. Yeah. Very influential. I, one band that comes to mm. mind, the Black Crows, who were big fans oh, yes. of the yeah. faces, and you can definitely hear it in their sound. 
you include a chapter on what you call the Hard Rock Trinity. Who makes up the Hard Rock Trinity, and why is 1970 an important year for these three bands? Oh, Led Zeppelin were one of the bands who had just got going at the end of the 60s. Blues and folk meets heavy rock, and that was an unbeatable combination, and they just completely took the whole world over. They initially took America by storm, really, before they did Britain, but Led Zeppelin could do absolutely no wrong in terms of setting out concerts and setting out albums and making sure that people bought the albums because they couldn't get the singles. So they certainly couldn't buy a Led Zeppelin single in Britain, for instance. And then the guys who came behind them, Deep Purple, there again, they were a really explosive force. They started off covering old standards in 1968, but then out of this and a few lineup changes, they got this most incredible combination of you know, progressive musicianship, classical stylings from the keyboard player John Lord. They got this dynamic guitarist in Richie Blackmore, and they got this amazing rock and roll singer in Ian Gillen with one of the most powerful voices of all. So you got this amazing mixture of heavy rock meets the classics and a little bit of everything in between. And then the third member of the Trinity, Black Sabbath, the band who they say invented heavy metal from the industrial West Midlands in England. There were anthems like Paranoid, War Pigs, Iron Man, that sort of thing. 1970, A Year in Rock, The Year Rock Became Mainstream is the book. It's out on January 30th, and we're talking with the author, John Vanderkist. Summer of 1970, John, a trio known as The Nice comes to an end. But Ah, oh, yes. But it was this band's keyboard player, who is regarded by some as the father of progressive rock, forms another trio, one of the biggest in progressive rock. Can you talk about this? Ah, that's right. Keith Emerson, the man who formed the Nice in 67, 68, one of the greatest keyboard players ever. He'd got this incredible mixture of jazz, psychedelia, a bit of classics. He could play more or less anything at the touch of a button. Once the Nice had gone as far as they could, then he disbanded them and they formed Emerson, Lake and Palmer. And they were one of those bands who, for about two or three years in the 70s, could do absolutely no wrong. More or less took the world by storm. Bob Dylan released what you call his most bizarre record yet in 1970. Can you talk about this album? How Bob himself later said he was purposely trying to distance himself from fans. And also, can you talk about the response this album got from Rolling Stone? Oh, yes. Bob Dylan and his self-portrait. Well, I think Dylan was just a bit tired with people expecting too much of him because they'd seen him as the great king of the process song and the great saver of folk music. Then he went electric and people thought, you know, what on earth is he doing with that? And then he went down the sort of avenue of playing country music and people didn't, well, some people like that, some people didn't. And eventually he thought, oh, never mind all this. I'm just going to do what I want to do. So he did this really weird album containing quite a lot of standards, even you know things like oh, Everly Brothers, Old Simon and Garfunkel songs. He even did Blue Moon, that Marcel's hit from several years earlier. And Rolling Stones, what is this rude word? <laughs> um, it sold really well at the time. It was number one album in Britain. It was, I think it got about number seven in America. So it certainly wasn't a disaster by any means. And I think a, a few weeks later, people thought this record is dreadful. And then about 10, 15 years later, they were saying, well, no, we can see where that fits into Dylan's career plan. It's him doing what he wants to do, but it does work in spite of it. What do you think of it? Have you listened to the whole thing? I've listened to the whole thing, and I, I sort of went through phases of thinking, oh, it's pretty dreadful. And then a few years later, I would bring it out again, and I, I would say, well, that's not bad, actually. Some of it I don't like, but some of it he is really taking chances, really being quite adventurous. And it does work in spite of that, or perhaps because of that. Having said that, I still prefer things like a blonde on blonde, blood on the tracks, that sort of thing. The Booked on Rock podcast will return after this. What is the best university ever? 
Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 1970, also the year. There's another guy who... Marched to with the beat of his own drum, Neil Young, and you can't talk about 1970 yeah. and not include Neil's classic song "Ohio," recorded by Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young. His bandmate and longtime okay, friend yeah. Stephen Stills called it the bravest thing he ever heard. Can you talk about what mm-hmm. inspired Neil to write the song? How fast he wrote it, and how fast the band recorded it? Well, Neil Young saw the news reports of the students being killed during that protest at Ohio State University back in May 1970. And he was absolutely incensed that something like that could happen in a free country like America. So he just picked up his acoustic guitar and wrote down what he felt, took President Nixon to task, wrote the song in a few minutes flat. They recorded it very quickly, got it out as a single. A lot of people said, oh, radio stations won't play that. It's far too controversial. But some of them did take a chance on it. And the record was a major hit in spite of being regarded as so subversive. So they took a chance, and as I say, who dares wins, and they won. You list the 25 significant albums from 1970 in your book, and what a list this is. You say in the book that you aimed for a representative choice from different genres, including the great and the very good, the obvious huge sellers that could not be omitted, and one or two Mm -hmm. of the sometimes overlooked. So let's get to some of these albums that make the list, which you order by British release date. Simon and Garfunkel's Bridge Over Troubled Water, released in January of 70 in the U.S., February in the U.K. Every single song from this yeah. album is great. The big ones are, of course, the title track and The Boxer. Talk about that title track. Although Paul Simon and Art Garfunkel, this is what I find interesting, they're butting heads, but Paul still knows how to put aside their differences. He does what he feels is best for the song, which means giving lead vocal duties to Art that's right, yes. Well, he recognized that there was something different about the quality of the song, and Art Garfunkel's voice suited that song a lot better than his did. And he also did this amazing arrangement, you know, with the strings, the backing vocals sounding like a choir, recorded it in several different studios, and the result was just ultimately perfection. So many different musicians that contribute to this track and album as well. Oh, yes. He went all sorts of styles on that, didn't he? He did one or two really commercial pop numbers, did a bit of sort of African music, a bit of reggae, one or two of Simon and Garfunkel ballads, the sort of thing that people would have expected. And it was really quite an extraordinary mixture of styles. There's one track on that album that, that's not a hit that I really enjoy listening to, and that is So Long Frank Lloyd Wright. I love that track. Oh, yes. What's your underrated pick from this album? The non-hits. Oh, I think probably The Only Living Boy in New York. I think that's a very poignant song, sort of very understated, very subtle, but also got a very simple treatment, and that song is beautiful, I think. Well, <laughs> several of them are pretty beautiful, but I think that stands out particularly for me. That's a great song, and especially once you know what it's about, because it is addressing the eventual breakup of Paul and, and Art. Because I think Paul was in New York while Art was filming a movie, 
And so Paul was all alone in New York writing music. And he was... That's right, yes. Felt like the only living boy in New York. Classic. Classic album. That's right, yes. March of 1970, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, they released Deja Vu in the U.S., released in the U.K. in May yes. of 70. What's so surprising to read about this album is that the four members of the band, David Crosby, Stephen Stills, Graham Nash, and Neil Young, spent very little time together in the studio, yet better harmonies you will not find when these four sing together and better music you won't find. Unfortunately, you write, these four would never reach this pinnacle again. Well, I think, yeah, I think so often when a band produces an absolute masterwork, a real classic, then, you know, how do you repeat perfection? You know, very often they can't live up to it. And I think we saw this several years later with the Eagles and Hotel California. That was almost perfect in every sense. And they said they just could not make anything to follow it afterwards. And that was one of the reasons that they split up two or three years later. Although, as we know, they did rejoin some years after that. But how do you capture magic in a bottle and how do you repeat it? Quite often you can't. And you have the battles between band members. Neil Young and Stephen Stills have always been best friends, and Neil gets along with Graham pretty well. But Neil and David Crosby yeah. never really got along, not from day one, I don't think. They ever, I don't think David Crosby really was all too fond of Neil joining the band, if I remember correctly. I don't think he was. But I think that was one of those cases where you've got people who are constantly sparring you know, together. And in spite of that, or perhaps because of that, then the chemistry is amazing, and they do still manage to produce terrific work. Which is why they would try to reform again down the road, whether it would be for financial reasons or just they all realized the chemistry they had. Oh, yeah. they, they tried. As we talked about, 1970 was the year the Beatles came to an end, but not without one more album. Their 12th and final album is Let It Be, released May of 1970 yeah. in both the UK and US, number one in both. The title track, The Long and Winding Road, Get Back, the standout singles. You write that it has its good moments, but doesn't compare well with previous albums. I think by Let It Be, they were plainly coming apart at the seams, I suppose. They could no longer really work together with each other, and they were becoming increasingly a group of solo artists. They could sort of hang it together just long enough to produce a few songs, but they plainly could no longer work together properly. John Lennon was sort of going completely on a different tack, getting more interested in his peace movements and making music with Yoko Ono, and the others just wanted to do their own thing, but Paul wanted to work separately. Ringo Starr and George Harrison managed to keep together, and to a certain extent, kept as a, a, a two-man Beatles, but I think they'd really just outgrown each other. Do you have some favorite songs from Let It Be? Well, I suppose the obvious ones are Get Back, which is a great rock and roll number, and Let It Be is a glorious choral song. That's a masterpiece by any standards. And I also particularly like For You Blue, that blues track that George Harrison wrote. I love the sly guitar on that one particularly, but I think several of those tracks are a bit of a mishmash, really. Obviously, not their best. Yeah, that track is an indication of where George was going. Yes, oh yeah. And he went on to have a great solo career. We talked about the popularity of live albums in 1970, The Who's Live at Leeds, yes. released May of 1970 in the U.S. and U.K. It's a top five album in both. As good as The Who were in the studio, they knew that when it came to performing live, they were on another level. But that doesn't always mean you can capture that energy on record, but here they do. It's one of the greatest live albums of all time. For me, personally, Magic Bus, that version stands out. I love it. What stands out to you most regarding this album? Well, I think, yeah, Magic Bus definitely is one of the greatest tracks of all. I think long version of my generation, too, is really quite something because they managed to take it apart and do something totally and utterly different with it. And I think also the fact that they could do the old rock and roll and the old blues stuff. They did the young man blues at the start, and then they did that sort of really furious, really seething with anger version of Summertime Blues. I think it just shows that they could stretch out in all different directions and they could make it work. 
The year 1970 marked the most successful era of Deep Purple. In the late 60s, they released three albums with the lineup of singer Rod Evans, guitarist Richie Blackmore, bassist Nick Simper, keyboardist John Lord, and drummer Ian Pace. They did have a hit single with the song Hush, number four in the U.S., 58 in the U.K., in 1968. But that wasn't enough for the band to keep going with this lineup. In 1970, we get Deep Purple Mark II. Singer Ian Gillen and bassist Roger Glover joined the band, and Deep Purple in Rock is released. In the U.K., that album was released in June U.S., August of 70. As you write, the band had been bursting with ideas before they entered the studio. The result is an album that cements their reputation. Well, this is just one of the most extraordinary hard rock albums ever. You've got a little bit of the classical influences of John Lord. You've got the rock and roll of Ian Gillen. And then you've got this sort of anything goes experimentation of Richie Blackmore on lead guitar. Roger Glover and Ian Pace of one of the greatest rhythm sections of all. And put all five together, the combination... Just didn't know any bones, really. Ian Pace, an underrated drummer. He does get respect, but sometimes I think he doesn't get enough respect. Outstanding drummer. Yes, and I think an interesting thing about Ian Pace is he is the only member who's been with the group right from the start, ever since 1968. He is the only one that stayed the course from those early days. Amazing. He's still with them 54 years later. That's that's a bit of a record in itself, I suppose, isn't it? Quite a long time to to hold one gig, to have one job. Yes, (laughs) yeah. Creedence Clearwater Revival entered the new decade on a roll. In the year 1969, they released three albums, Bayou Country, Green River, and Willie and the Poor Boys. Green River, number one in the U.S., Willie and the Poor Boys, number three in the U.S., 10 in the U.K. Interesting numbers in the U.K., though. They went from number 62 in the U.K. with Bayou Country, number 20 with Green River, and 10 with Willie and the Poor Boys. So they're starting to get really hot in the U.K. by 1970, right? They were, yes. I think they just concentrated on America first of all, sort of getting successful over there. But once Credence came over to Britain, then they were just unstoppable because that combination of blues and rock and roll, some really short tracks, some really long, drawn-out, improvised ones, there again, that was a very unusual combination, the sort of thing we'd, I don't think we'd really heard the likes of in Britain before. You know, they got combination of the Beatles, the Stones, and the old rock and roll guys, the old blues guys, and it was completely new and very exciting at the time. And it culminates with an album in 1970 that hits number one in both the U.S. and U.K., Cosmos Factory. Yes. Also number one in Australia, Canada, Finland, and Norway. Four times platinum, released in July of 70 in the U.S., August in the U.K. An interesting note to lead off this entry, you write, quote, The demise of the Beatles left two prime contenders for the greatest rock and roll band, the Rolling Stones and Creedence Clearwater Revival, and they rise up to the challenge with Cosmos Factory. Think of the songs on this album. Traveling Band, Looking Out My Back Door, Run Through the Jungle, Up Around the Bend, Who'll Stop the Rain, their cover of I Heard It Through the Grapevine, and Long As I Can See the Light. Four of those songs hit number two. Two of them reach four. That's six top ten singles coming from an 11-track album. I mean, this is as good as it gets, and you got to give credit to John Fogarty. I know it's a band effort, but he's the guy who wrote the songs. The other three guys made a very good rhythm section. Tom Fogarty, Sue Cook, Doug Clifford... But, uh, you know, John Fogarty was a genius, really, that held them all together. Now, he was a multi-instrumentalist. He could play pretty well any instrument that shared a room with him. Great songwriter, great singer, great producer. And he, he also managed the band, too. And I think when you think he was doing all that stuff at once, that, that was an incredible workload. It's not much surprise that he just could not sustain that for a great length of time. After two or three years, personal and musical differences set in, and uh, I think he decided he'd had enough. But... 
that does not mask the fact that, you know, he was very hardworking, very prolific, took on an incredible load, and he made so many incredible albums in such a short space of time. Sorry, they made so many incredible albums, but, uh, you know, it was sort of largely down to John himself, with all due respect to the other guys. So prolific as a songwriter. Another classic live album comes out that year. It's The Stones, Get Your Yeah Yeahs Out. We talked about it a little bit earlier, released in September of 1970. This is the first yeah, live yeah. album to top the British charts. You write that it has its flaws, but by far the band's best. Oh, yes. I think one or two live versions don't really quite stand up to the ones that we heard on record. I think the ones that I recall particularly are Live With Me and Stray Cat Blues. Great album tracks, but not quite so good on stage. And I think also the live version of Sympathy for the Devil just doesn't really capture the magic of the original. But sometimes it happens that way. Sometimes you cannot repeat what you did in the studio, but sometimes you, know, you can better it. You certainly can't fault those live versions of things like Jumper Jack Flash or Honky Tonk Women. You know, just sheer excitement. Well, I'll tell you what my personal favorite, though, from this. I know they got the hits on here, but I love the version of Midnight Rambler. That's a bit of a slightly undiscovered classic, isn't it? It's obviously too long to play on the radio, and I suppose the subject matter is considered a little bit not all that cosy, but it's a great song. It's a great performance all the same. That's the thing about the Stones. They've had some great, fun, upbeat songs, but they can get pretty dark, and this is a dark song, Midnight Rambler. Oh, yeah, yes. Never darker than, yeah. The title of the album, by the way, taken from a Blind Boy Fuller song, the album cover also is interesting. We lost Charlie Watts, sadly, in 2021. He is on the cover of this album. I will never forget seeing this album in my older brother's vinyl collection. What the heck is the story behind this album cover, which shows just Charlie with guitars and bass drums hanging from the neck of a donkey? This has to do with Bob Dylan, right? That's right, yes. Jewels and binoculars hang from the head of the mule. Bob Dylan, Visions of Joanna, from Blonde on Blonde in 1966. I, I didn't realize that, actually, until I started researching the album when I was writing the book. Who would have thought it, right? I mean, it's not something you would exactly, make that yeah. connection to right away. Led Zeppelin three, released in October of 1970. Got a lukewarm reception from critics' modest sales, but over the years, this one's gained a reputation as being among Zeppelin's best. What do you think of Zeppelin three? It was a bit of a surprise when it came out. There, I suppose, a little bit like Bob Dylan's self-portrait, because I think I felt, and a lot of other people felt at the same time, Led Zeppelin, this is almost a folk album, isn't it? I mean, listen to these acoustic guitars, that old blues stuff sounds like it could have been done in the 30s or the 40s, you know, mandolins, that sort of thing. It's good music, but it doesn't sound like Led Zeppelin, does it? And then when you listen to it a bit more, you read about the other stuff that Jimmy Page is doing, and you realize that they weren't just doing remakes of Whole Lot of Love and that sort of really 96 decibel stuff all the time. They could be quite subtle. They knew their blues music, they knew their folk music, and it was a tremendous combination, and they were one of those groups who could play more or less anything they wanted to. Led Zeppelin Three is one of those albums that just sounds better over the years. And yes, it's acoustic, but that doesn't mean there aren't some hard and heavy ones on there. Like you write, there is one particular track that was a joy to those who love their heroes hard and heavy. That is that oh, yeah. opening Immigrant track. Song. Immigrant song. Yeah. yeah. It's dynamite, yeah. Elton John's Tumbleweed Connection came out in October of 1970 in the UK, January of 71 in the US. Interesting in that there are no hit singles, none of the 10 tracks well-known, but yet... This is regarded as one of his best ever. Yes, I think he put a lot of imagination into that one. It's got a character all of its own that I don't think any of Elton's other albums really have. Ballad of a Well-Known Gun, Country Comfort, Where To Now, St. Peter is another great track. Also, Amarina. Amarina is another good one, too. Yes. 
Santana released the album Abraxas in September of 1970 in the U.S., November in the U.K. You write, quote, by the end of the 60s, the San Francisco Bay Area had become synonymous with musical experimentation. You write that few groups broke the mold more decisively and made a success of it than the Latin rock outfit led by guitarist Carlos Santana. This album went top 10 in the U.K., number one in the U.S. They were still riding the wave created by their appearance at Woodstock. That's right, yeah, Santana. I think nobody had never really heard anything like them before, and this is probably one of the first world music albums in retrospect, wasn't it? It got a mixture of rock, blues, world rhythms, African, South American sounds. You just never heard all this stuff together on one record before, had you? Astonishing. The year 1970 saw Eric Clapton shy away from his fame, forms a band called Derek and the Dominoes, the album Layla and other assorted love songs. With Eric's name nowhere to be found on the album cover, the label execs are stressing, how are we going to promote this? And what they feared really happens. It doesn't chart upon release, but as word gets out over time that this is, in fact, Eric Clapton, people start listening, and all these yep. years later, it's considered a masterpiece. The song Layla is legendary, but there's more than just this song. You write that there is a remarkably eclectic mix on display here. Yes, well, there were one or two slightly country-like songs. There was I Looked Away... And then Bill Bottom Blues, gloriously mournful, sort of focused on that. It's not exactly blues, as we understand it, but incredible tune anyway. And then you've got the old classic from the old jazz world of the 20s, Nobody Knows It When You're Down and Out. Then you've got these amazing self-written songs, things like Every Day, Tell the Truth, Why Does Love Got to Be So Sad. Then you've got that lovely little acoustic piece at the end, Thorn Tree in the Garden. It's an amazing mixture of styles, you know, not just blues. And, of course, got a Hendrix tribute, Little Wing. Can't forget that one, of course. Talking with John Vanderkist, his book 1970, A Year in Rock, The Year Rock Became Mainstream, due out January 30th. Let's go from Layla to Lola. The Kinks release an album November of 1970 in the U.K. and U.S. titled Lola vs. Power Man and the Money Go Round Part 1. What's the story behind this title? Well, Lola was the big hit single that started it all off, and that was really quite daring for the time because it was about a transvestite whom Ray Davis had met in the rather senior areas of Soho, centre of London. There's another hit single on that one, another top five single called Eight Man, all about just wishing he could be free and sort of live like a, a monkey in the jungle. And that was almost a reggae calypso song, that one. That was musically quite ahead of its time. But then a lot of the rest of the album was a satire on the music business and the parts of London, you know, how he'd got ripped off by the management and the management claimed that he'd taken them for a ride. And quite a funny album in some ways, but some of it is incredibly bitter. Ray Davis is having a go at the people who had been milking him while he was on his way up. The amazing thing is it is such a good album on a musical level, but can be quite bitter and it's infective as well. And then sometimes, of course, it's really very funny. So that album title is a reference to his battles with the record company? Like Power Man is that's the right, record yeah, label right, exec yeah. so guy? Money go round. It went round the music business, but the people it didn't necessarily get to were the performers and the writers, the people who actually created the music. It was the middlemen, the accountants, and so on. That story about the transvestite, and that leads to the song Lola, that's pretty well known. But one story not as well known has to do with the Cherry Cola line. Can you talk about that? It was a oh, last minute, uh, yes. last minute change, right? That's right, yes. Well, Ray Davis originally wrote and sang the song as a, you go to a club, the champagne tastes just like Coca-Cola. And the BBC said, oi, you cannot play a song with the line Coca-Cola in it because that is advertising for the Coca-Cola company. So the story goes that Ray Davis had to fly back around the world, I think from Japan to London, so he could re-record the line as Lemon Cola. No, quite well, somebody else with a voice sounding like his couldn't have sung the word lemon on the same, you know, goodness knows, but that's what we're told happened. 
he was going to change it to lemon cola, but then ultimately went with cherry? He, he changed it to lemon cola, yes. He was allowed to do that because lemon cola wasn't a trade name, and so that was not advertising, and, and that was allowed. Now, wait, are you saying lemon, or do you mean cherry? Or did they really want to do lemon and then change it to cherry? Well, I think they wanted to do lemon, but then somebody said, do cherry cola, and, uh, <laughs> and they thought, well, cherry cola fits. So <laughs> eventually they got there. Yeah. Oh, man. So, yeah, another battle against the power man. There you go. There's an example. Of <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> we know now that George Harrison was ready to bust out musically towards the end of his time with the Beatles, but, boy, he really proves he can make it on his own. All Things Must Pass, released November of 1970 in both the U.K. and U.S. Double album packed with musician yes. friends and colleagues of George, too. But this is a culmination of what George had been working through for the previous few years. Now, he'd been stockpiling these incredible songs that... The Beatles didn't have room for on their albums because Lennon and McCartney were coming up with great stuff, well, pretty much all the time. But George had got his little pile of songs, some of which he did get as far as demoing and recording with the Beatles during the last years, but there wasn't room to fit them on. Once the Beatles were finished, then, you know, he was his own man, his own boss, and the floodgates burst open and he was able to record them, do what he wanted to with them. Hence the result, this mammoth album in a box set, number one album, his best album ever, and I think people reckon this is the best solo album ever recorded by a former member of the Beatles. And you've got some wonderful songs on there. You've got My Sweet Lord, which everybody knows. You've got country songs like Behind That Locked Door. You've got the ballad, Isn't It a Pity? And you've got that wonderful big production pop number, What Is Life? Glorious sound, glorious production, and a lot else besides. The song Wawa, there is a connection there to his final days with the Beatles. Well, we're told that she had a row with Paul McCartney in the studio one day, and they were going on and on with each other, and eventually George said, you're giving me a headache, you're giving me a wah-wah, I've had enough. And we're told that he went out and wrote the song very soon after that. I and love it. In spite of the fact that it was quite an angry song, it was really quite a joyous piece of music, after all. So, and that is the fact that actually opened that concert for Bangladesh live album that George Harrison did a year later. Incredible performance, sort of burst on you a bit like a thunderclap. Now, it's really quite a simple song when you think about it. Wah-wah, you're giving me a wah-wah. The lyrics are very simple, but he managed to elevate it into this really tremendous production. Really great song. I love George Harrison's solo work. Well, I will say George Harrison's always been my favorite solo Beatle. I think there's a very tender, slightly vulnerable quality to a lot of his songs, which I think to me really stand out much more than those that John and Paul did on their own, good as they are. The last album to make your list is The Moves Looking On. This came out in December of 70 in the UK, January of 71 in the US. If fans don't recognize the band name, you'll recognize one of the band members and the band he would go on to form, Jeff Lynne. He goes on to form Electric Light Orchestra. You write that this album is a snapshot of the direction Jeff was going in? Yes, this was. I think this is more or less the beginning of ELO, this album, because you've got those two titans. You've got Roy Wood on one hand, Jeff Lynne on the other. Both of them remarkable talents who did manage to work together for a limited amount of time. But you've got quite a lot of styles on this album. You've got the sort of heavy rock. You've got the experimental prog rock. You've got stuff with you know, bassoons and cellos on it as well as electric guitars. You've got a certain amount of, sort of classical soundings. You've got a bit of jazz and you've got that ballad what, which is really the forerunner of ELO in a way. It's a very neglected album. A lot of people didn't know about it when it came out and it just, it hardly sold at all anywhere, but it's really quite a myriad of styles. And yes, you can see the ELO coming from that all over the place. Have you had a chance to read Jeff Lynne's book? He put out a book in November, Wembley or Bust. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I haven't had a chance to, no, but it certainly is on my list, yes. He's one of the great songwriters to come out of that era, too. Amazing songwriter and producer. 
Oh, he is. I think it, when it comes to the all-time league table of record producers, he is very near the top. I think obviously George Martin is number one with, for the stuff he did with the Beatles, then Phil Spector, who sadly rather lost it. But I think Jeff Lynne is very, very close behind. All right, going to put you on the spot here, John. Your favorite album from right. 19... What is your favorite album from 1970? What is your favorite song from 1970? Oh, golly. Um... Well, I think if you were to ask me every day in the day for a week, I would probably give you a different album each time. But I think I have to say, off the top of my head, make it George Harrison, All Things Must Pass, because it's got such a remarkable variety of styles in that one. And I think my favorite song from 1970, oh, ah, uh, oh, oh. That's hard to pick. Okay, all right. I'll, I'll give you a snap decision, Up Around the Bend, Creedence Clearwater Revival. That has got one of the absolute killer guitar riffs of all time. Na, 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 na. But at the beginning, that is just sheer magic, that one. Cannot argue with you on that. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, John Fogarty, well, I would say underrated as a guitarist. He's no more as a songwriter, but some of those riffs. He was one of the masters of the guitar riff, indeed. No doubt. 1970, A Year in Rock. The Year Rock became mainstream out January 30th through Sonic Bond Publishing. It's available wherever books are sold. It's available through BurningShed.com if you live in the UK. It's also available through Amazon. And you do have another book that either recently came out or is coming out through Sonic Bond? Yes, I've completed another one, and I've done the proofreading of it. I've done a book on Mott the Hoople and Ian Hunter in the 70s. That's the one. And that is coming out, I think, probably at the end of this month, probably any day now. And I've also done another book in the same series on Free and Bad Company in the 70s. Oh, boy, I got it. Yeah, Bad Company. And it doesn't doesn't stop there because I've just started this week. I started another book in the same series, again for Sonic Bond, on Manfred Mann's Earth Band in the 70s. Awesome. I love Bad Company. By the way, (laughs) how is Bad Company not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, John? How is that even possible? It's got to be there before long. Enormously influential band. One of the greatest British bands that ever made it big in America. They were the first band, I think, to have a a number one album with our first album since the Beatles in America. Amazing. How's that? Paul Rogers' voice, still as good as ever. Paul Rogers is one of the great folkists of all time. Everybody says that. He does heavy rock, he does blues, he's done soul, he's done a bit of easy listening. There's nothing that man can't sing. I had a chance to see Bad Company maybe, boy, time flies. It might have been maybe five years ago. They toured with Leonard Skinner. And oh yes, Paul's yeah. voice was just amazing live. And I would say my favorite of the quote-unquote non-hits, Seagull. Seagull, that is a beautiful song, that one. Absolutely. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Another yeah. beautiful one people should listen to if they don't know it's already Shooting Star. Oh. That is glorious. Yes. Very poignant song. Absolutely. And Free, very underrated, too, because they're known for All Right Now. But, boy, there's a lot more there. Well, My brother Jake, yeah. Steeler, which wasn't a hit. Wishing Well, one of the great guitarists. Yes. Wishing Well. And, and, and so much more. Well, I'd love to have you back on again then for future books, past books. <laughs> well, yes, I, yeah. I should be here. Yeah, absolutely, John. Thanks so much for doing this. Well, lovely to talk to you, Eric. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks to John Vanderkist for taking us through his book, 1970, A Year in Rock. The Year Rock Became Mainstream. If you have a local independent bookstore, pick up a copy there and support not just John, but your local independent bookstore. A link to find your nearest bookstore is on our website, bookedonrock.com. Make sure you subscribe to Booked on Rock at Spreaker or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. We're on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, TuneIn, YouTube, and more. 
You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Booked on Rock Podcast. On Twitter, at Booked on Rock. The email address is the Booked on Rock Podcast at gmail.com. If you're a publisher or author of a book and you want to be on the podcast, send me an email or just contact me through our website, bookedonrock.com. I'm Eric Senich. Thanks for listening and join me again next time for another brand new episode of Booked on Rock. What is the best university ever? Welcome to Iowa, where you can write your own story. Choose from over 200 areas of study, including a dozen programs ranked in the top 10. Roll up your sleeves and try something new. You never know where it might take you. This story is written, directed, and produced by you. Learn more at uiowa.edu. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.